my father is a Nigerian immigrant. My mother is a Vietnamese immigrant. They didn't come to the United States until they were adults. So, you know, I would spend so many years when I was a kid. You know, I remember this probably as early as like four, running down to get in the middle of my parents who were having one of what were many arguments to try to translate. Each of them spoke English with that baggage, essentially, of their prior experience. And, um, and so simple words like, I want some respect. That statement, I want some respect, meant something very different for my mom than it did for my dad. I want to start this podcast with a couple of questions. When you talk to somebody with a different background from yours, do they really know what you're talking about? Do you really understand them? And if you're uncertain, do you speak up about it? Or do you just let it go? Hi, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is the UCLA Anderson podcast, How the World Works. Heather Caruso says the answers to those questions can be very important. Sometimes the stakes are high for agreement. Sometimes it's just a matter of getting along. Heather Caruso is a former engineer and executive in Silicon Valley. She has partnered with Chicago's Second City on a science project, and she is the Assistant Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at UCLA Anderson. Dean Caruso, thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you, Warren. I'm, I'm glad to be here. People have different backgrounds. That's a daily challenge in an increasingly diverse environment. And you say we don't really treat each other very well. What do you mean by that? I mean, we we bring a lot to the table um, as individuals. We bring really wonderful, rich life histories. Um, and understanding those life histories and sort of respecting the way that they shape our contributions, it takes effort. It really takes listening to people, trying to understand um, sort of how they interpret their own experiences, what lessons they've extracted from those, um, how they're interpreting our own uh, behaviors and, and, and interactions with them. It takes a, a kind of a care and an attentiveness that people in our world right now, it's, you know, it's so busy. It's been busy for a while. It doesn't look like it's going to slow down anytime soon. And so um, we shortcut and we have um, superficial conversations. We ask how one another, you know, how we're doing uh, in the hallway and everyone says fine, or many people say fine when that doesn't really uh, accurately capture how we're feeling. And we don't press for um, accuracy. And, and I can understand, obviously, the the sort of efficiencies that we achieve by doing that. But I think over time, that kind of superficiality can wear us down. And if we're not really deliberate about creating space for more authentic interactions, um, I really fear that the um, the the costs to that and the um, the energy that we lose by not being seen and not being heard and not being respected on a daily basis like that, that those costs get to be quite high uh, and for individuals as well as for our society. Elaborate on the, what you mean by costly. In what environment is it costly or when is it less likely to be costly? Well, there are a lot of different costs. All, let me let me talk about a couple. Um, so one of them is, you know, uh, if after we get 
uh, down the hall and and we get into a conference room or we get into a meeting and um, we now have to sit down and make a decision with one another. We have to, you know, think about how we're going to design a new program, how we're going to um, progress through a promotion process, who we're going to hire, these kinds of things. And as we uh, make those decisions together, we're going to bring, as I said, sort of a lot of this richness from our personal backgrounds uh, to the table. Some of us are going to be able to see in, say, the background of a job applicant, um, you know, a real striving to overcome adversity. We're going to understand maybe because of our own personal experiences with adversity, uh, just what a monumental feat for them to achieve what they've done, you know, given that background. Other people at the table with us might not have that same background, might not have that same sensitivity that allows them to pick up on what's in that job application in the way that we might. Um, And if we don't have a a set of conversational norms, if we don't have a a humility about um, how much we all have to contribute to one another, how much these different perspectives shape our evaluation of what's in front of us, then we don't ask the right questions. We don't get that information out on the table. I I know that we have um, too many routines and too many habits for how to have those kinds of conversations, job, you know, evaluating job applicants. There's a sort of script that often develops in in organizations for, you know, how we go through the resume and what we talk about and we take a vote or, you know, those routines um, don't do a great job of allowing people to bring their unique perspective, their unique expertise uh, to the table. And so the costs can be pretty significant when it comes to, you know, not selecting the best job applicants, not giving people a a leg up in in breaking into a field or advancing within the organization. Um, I think disproportionately, this kind of failure to communicate effectively is going to hurt the people who have non-traditional backgrounds, um, even though they might be at least as good, maybe they might be better than the candidates that we've typically thought of as being appropriate for, you know, for those, those roles, uh, we won't see it because our current routines don't prompt us to take time to look around for what we haven't seen before. And of course, I've been talking about sort of job applications, but I think this applies to all kinds of organizational processes when it comes to, you know, hiring and promotion, when it comes to thinking about who to give more responsibility or how to evaluate uh, someone's performance with a project that they've been working on. Well, you've got a great example of how this has been measured at least once. What I mean by that is what has been measured uh, is the failure of people to really understand uh, each other. And that is a study of hospital interns handing off shifts from outgoing to incoming. Uh, talk about that, if you will, and how it is a measure and and what it does measure and how it supports uh, what you're concerned about. Absolutely. This is um, one of my favorite studies because it just, it, it really nicely quantifies something that's hard for us to get our hands around. Um, so in this study, the researchers wanted to figure out how much we're actually listening to one another. Uh, they chose to look at, at hospitals and they um, looked in particular at the trade-off or the, the handoff of communication uh, that occurs between uh, interns who are just coming off of a shift and interns who are just coming on to a shift. Really important moment in the in the day of the hospital. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, literally, life and death. Yeah. Uh, and quite rightly, uh, in this hospital, uh, interns 
take a minute. They go to the side. They go to a, a room where it's quiet. Uh, the outgoing intern will explain, you know, here's what needs to be done. Here's, you know, the patients that need to be attended to and, the, you know, with what priority and here's why this is the set of priorities that I'm saying you need to go after. And they, they really take the time to have that one-on-one conversation, outgoing intern to ingoing, incoming intern. And what the researchers did is they sort of let that conversation occur and then afterwards separately go to talk to the outgoing intern, the sort of speaker, the primary speaker in that conversation and the incoming intern who had been the primary listener. And they ask what what was said, right? So they ask the, the outgoing intern, what did you say? What were your priorities? What were the rationales that you provided for those priorities? And then they go to the listener, they go to the incoming intern and say, what did the speaker say? Um, and what were their priorities and what were the rationales they provided? Right? Really, it sh- these things should match up one-to-one. Uh, and what they found is that actually something only like 60 to 70% of what the outgoing intern communicated was actually getting heard accurately. Um, and the rest, it's, you know, it's not, it's not completely random, but it's not accurate. And I think that's really important. And this is uh, a similar, a similar kind of finding has come out of multiple other studies in the same sort of vein, just showing that listening is not something that we can take for granted. It's not, and it's not, I think, a, a, an issue of motivation. I think that we have no reason to think that the incoming interns weren't wanting to pay attention, as you said before. The stakes couldn't be higher, um, but that listening accurately is just hard. A lot is is conveyed. This kind of goes back to what I was saying before about the different backgrounds, the different perspectives that each of us brings to the table. We don't pay attention to how much those backgrounds and those perspectives shape the specific way in which we communicate, the words that we use. We bring all of that to the table when we speak. We don't generally check to make sure that listeners have that same set of connotations, that they hear those words the same way we intend them. I don't think we actually get our message across nearly as well as we, we would think. You learned a lot about this when you were growing up and becoming the person that you are. I know you don't mind my asking this uh, because it really is a fascinating question. How does this apply to you personally? Oh, I mean, it's uh, it's such a huge part of my personal life and my professional life, uh, in a way that almost seems inevitable. Because my um, my father is a Nigerian immigrant, my mother is a Vietnamese immigrant. They didn't come to the United States until they were adults, um, and then they met and got married in a town in Southern California that's um, mostly white and Hispanic. And so I grew up in that cultural context where <laughs> sort of nobody had the same um, perspective, that same viewpoint, the same assumptions, the same connotations for language, right? And one of the things that that helped me to develop an appreciation for early on is that language is a much richer, um, but also much sort of um, more vague sort of tool than um, a lot of people appreciate. So, you know, I would spend so many years when I was a kid, and I'm, you know, I remember this probably as early as like four, running down to get in the middle of my parents who were having one of what were many arguments um, to try to translate. Uh, to try to help my mom understand, wait, 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 I think dad is trying to say this. Oh, wait, no, hold on, dad. I think mom was really asking, you know, X, Y, and Z. And each of them spoke English with that baggage, essentially, of their prior experience. And, um, And so simple words like, you know, I want some respect, all right? That statement 
initially, a lot of people could hear that and say, I know what that person's saying, right? But that that statement, I want some some respect, meant something very different for my mom than it did for my dad. And it it's not even just globally, it meant something different for my mom, you know, given the particular situation. Was she talking about respect in a decision-making situation where they, were, they had to make a decision about, you know, the kids and our upbringing? Or did she want respect as a member of the partnership, you know, just in terms of negotiating the terms of their own romantic relationship? Relationship. That word respect carries so many particular connotations. And, and I, as a, an observer, just could see that kind of mistake occurring over and over and over again. And these people who loved each other so much and cared so much about the family, really causing one another enormous pain. It became really important to me to literally get in the middle of it and, um, and try to force, essentially, people to take that time. Then, of course, the two of them, coming from different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds as they did, had to deal when they went out of the house uh, with uh, white and Hispanic Americans who themselves come uh, from very different uh, points of view. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we had to negotiate how we were going to interact with members of our community when many of the cultural traditions my parents had were different from the cultural traditions that um, were had by the people that we were growing up around. And then when I went to college, I went to college uh, at Stanford and and needed a way to pay for the, the school and so got a job in the Silicon Valley that happened to be for an internet startup company run by a Japanese from Japan um, president and CEO and a Midwestern American VP and COO. The president and CEO lived in Japan the entire time we were um, we were in business, um, and so had a very strong tie to Japanese culture. And we had a customer service staff that was Japanese, and many members of the firm were located in Japan, while others were located in the Silicon Valley. And you know, in all of these interactions, you know, sort of both within my community back home, and then when I was working in the Silicon Valley, you could start to see that same dynamic that I initially had gotten exposed to as a child play out in the most high stakes professional context, the most high stakes kind of um, community government context. It just, it seemed kind of everywhere. And at the time, people generally thought that diversity was good and there was a sort of a general openness to it. But there was no sense that we needed to change our communication norms and how when you're interacting with people who are from roughly the same background as you, of course, it becomes obvious that you use the same kind of common cultural references. You uh, you have some exposure probably early on to the same uh, moral priorities, to the same social norms, and then you don't have to explain it to one another. Later on, you just kind of assume it and you make reference to it and you use it as context. You don't have to think about it. Of course, that's going to break down when you start to interact with people who grew up in other contexts where they have different moral priorities, different social norms. Um, And it doesn't have to be, we have to battle it out and try to figure out whose uh, norms are going to win. Really, it's just as simple as understanding that we should explore why those norms grew up in in those uh, contexts and then think about the context that we're going to be in now, the new organizations, the new schools that we're going to be in now together right? We have a choice now and we have this wealth, this bounty of all the norms and the the values and the habits that I have from my background and you have all of yours. And if we come together, we could choose from all of these different things. And as we choose, we can experiment and we can figure out, does this work well for you? Does this work well for me? And iterate and develop. It should be a call to innovate Uh, You said that in the cases that you described, the norms are different. What happens when the norms 
have issues of power associated with them. I have all the qualifications required to be an old white man. And given the white privilege that defines the history of this country, what do I need to be conscious of when I talk to people with backgrounds different from mine, not just people from other countries, but Americans who are black, who are Latinx, who are from uh, uh, an Asian uh, background? What's your advice and counsel? That's an excellent question. I think just asking the question is a really important thing to sort of try to think about the experiences of people who don't have power. Um, I think recognizing that it's difficult to depart from the prevailing norm is a good start. That recognizing that coming into that space is, it's demanding. You have to just figure out how the world works. What are the power dynamics? We all know that it's not like, you know, an organization chart tells you everything that you need to know about who influences whom in an organization. So all of the uh, the work that has to be done to infer what the reality is for someone who's very unfamiliar with that context. It takes time. It takes emotional energy. It takes mental energy. And for people who are very familiar with that context, where that organization and its membership and the informal norms are very much like the informal norms of, you know, community centers that they spent time in growing up or the country clubs that their families have been associated with, when those norms were learned and became familiar earlier, you can walk into that organization and you just don't have as much work to do. And speaking out to say, you know, for an underrepresented um, uh, individual to say, you know, as I'm learning about the firm, here's something that uh, that hurts me or that offends me. And to do that, knowing that, you know, there's no, there's no existing um, recognition among the power holders, among those who are more familiar, that there might be something wrong with the status quo. Well, if you've got the power and you've got the privilege, it's not something you want to think about. I don't know that it's that you don't want to think about it. You just don't end up thinking about it. One of the things that's nice about what's going on in society today is that people are discovering that lots of people do actually want to talk about it, many more than um, than people had thought. Let me ask you, you worked with Second City in Chicago. That's an acting group. They've uh, given uh, people to uh, Saturday Night Alive. They're famous for that. Uh, how did you and Second City work on the kinds of issues that we're talking about? So... Um, we worked in a couple of different ways. I'd say that the main intersection was around an understanding of improvisation as something that is fundamental to human life. Um, so obviously they use improvisation uh, kind of primarily uh, in entertainment to try to think about how you get people in an improvisational way to be present with their partners and generate something that's kind of resonant and funny on the spot. And they've done an incredible job making that a skill that they can teach and so that they can be the kind of premier destination for people who want to follow in the footsteps of Stephen Colbert or Tina Fey and the like. Um, but along the way, I think they also realized that improvisation has a lot of uh, resonance and a lot of um, relevance outside of entertainment. And um, when I started talking to Kelly Leonard, a dear friend and primary collaborator on this, we started to recognize that everyday interactions call for you to be kind of on your feet, attentive to the people that are in front of you, try to think about what they're offering up. If you respond kind of in a rote manner, just sort of habitual routines, uh, I think people get the feeling you're not really, you're not there, you're not listening to them, you're not, you're not going to be someone they can partner with to think critically or, or differently. The people who tend to succeed the most, I think, in, in social interactions are those people who are really ready 
to take whatever the person in front of them is saying and respond attentively. So we, we started talking about how you could take improvisational skill. What are the kinds of training situations that would help you to reliably develop that skill? And where would that skill be the most useful? And for me, it really stands out as being useful in diverse communities because when you're meeting people that don't come from the same background as you, there is a higher than normal call to be a great listener, to be attentive to what they're bringing to the table because you do not know it already. Improvisation is fundamental to human life. That's really an interesting insight, I think, and uh, and really an important one. And uh, on the other hand, you're not looking for uh, an audition with Saturday Night Live, I take it. Right. No. I. What I would really love, though, is for people to realize that becoming, you know, more diverse as a society gives us all the opportunity to improvise and to reimagine the way that life um, could be on a much more regular basis than we had before. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about ECHO, E-C-H-O, uh, an acronym, Engaged, Courageous, Humble, Open. That's something that you teach, I take it, and it's a way to structure the kinds of things that you're talking about. Just tell us, if you will, briefly, how it plays a role in what you do at UCLA Anderson. Sure. Uh, so ECHO is basically a sort of a rule of thumb that I encourage our students to use when conversations get difficult. And this could be used for any kind of difficult conversation, but I think it's especially helpful in the kinds of difficult conversations that arise when you're in a diverse community where people are going to come to the table and they're going to say things that might be difficult for you to understand or might sound offensive. I think it's important that people understand, just back to what we were talking about before, to take a moment in those difficult situations to say, all right, I'm getting emotionally involved. They're getting emotionally involved. So echo is a way to to move yourself in that direction. So it starts with almost a literal echo in the sense that you try to voice, if you're a listener, you try to voice what you have heard the other person say. You know, you might say, like, what I'm hearing you say is that this really bothers you uh, and that you would like me to stop, you know, engaging in, in this particular action. And, and then you would ask for confirmation. Is that right? Am I getting you correctly? If you're a speaker, you can also invite an echo and say, you know, I, I feel like what I'm saying might be a little bit kind of convoluted or difficult to uh, to grasp. Can you tell me what you're hearing just so we can make sure we're on the same page? Um, and that allows people as they start to get into the tricky parts of the conversation to get closer to accuracy. And then as people achieve that accuracy and they can confirm with one another, yes, you're getting it. That's exactly what I meant. Then you can proceed into the difficult conversation, which might involve dealing with something that that has offended you, that does offend you, or might involve something that you think is wrong. Um, but you get into that conversation where you can explain, here's why this is offensive to me, or here's why I don't think this should be offensive. You can do all of that talking with this foundation of mutual concern for hearing the other person the way that they want to be heard. So you're not arguing with a caricature of the other person's point of view. You're arguing with the actual point of view that they affirm is what they believe. And it has a way, I think, of making the conversation feel more grounded, more respectful, to use that word, respectful meaning, I am going to take it as true that you believe what we have just agreed is your statement like that that now that we get it together 
I'm going to argue with that particular point of view as, as we proceed. And you need to do that. You need to engage in this way. That's the E in echo. You need to engage in that conversation with courage because you know you're going to be exposed to views that might be challenging. Um, you might have to voice some views that are challenging. You need to do it with humility, you know, understanding, of course, that with that increasing diversity in the world, people are going to bring all of this previous experience to the table that you probably are not familiar with. So don't presume you know what where they're coming from until they they surface it. And then openness is about making sure that you are also sharing your point of view. You know, here is my position and what I'd like you to to understand. Well, thank you so much for a uh, introduction to uh, uh, Echo. It's sort of uh, Echo 101 that we've heard here on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast, and uh, I have learned a great deal uh, from uh, talking to you and listening to you. I don't know what percentage of what you really intended I've been able to pick up, uh, but I hope uh, that it's as close to 100% as, uh, as possible. Heather Caruso, again, Assistant Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, EDI at UCLA Anderson. Great to talk with you, and thank you so much. Thank you, Warren. I've really enjoyed it.